Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be here with you guys. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is Jack Brady. Um, I get to serve here with the youth and over the worship. Um, and uh, Dwayne's gone today. They're in Nicaragua. They're on a mission trip, so I get to fill in. Um, and I've had probably four or five people this morning ask me what Lord of the Rings quote I'm going to share today. Uh, I just want to clear the air up front. There's not going to be any Lord of the Rings quotes on purpose, okay? So uh, something might happen later down the road. Who knows? But if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 is where we're going to be at today. The last couple of weeks, we've been diving through the book of Ezra, and uh, this is the story of going back to rebuild the temple after a time of exile. And at the end of Ezra chapter 8, we see that after about four or five months of travel, Ezra and the children of those who had been taken away captive are finally going to return to Jerusalem. They have fasted, they have prayed for protection, they've separated gifts, I mean millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff for the temple. They've separated away uh, just to honor God and give God the glory for everything that he's done for them. In other words, they've literally done everything right up to this moment. And the Lord has blessed their journey. Whenever they were traveling, it tells us that God protected them um, while they were traveling. And after three days of their arrival in Jerusalem, they offer sin offerings, they offer burnt offerings to cleanse themselves of any sin that, they have occur that may have occurred, and they give an account of all the stuff that they have brought with them. So they are standing before God clean. And their hearts are fully devoted to Him in worship. They're about as good as you could possibly get. And you can imagine, after a long time of traveling, there's a lot of excitement around what they're going to be doing once they finally get to Jerusalem. They're finally going to rebuild the temple. But guess what? Within days of their arrival in Jerusalem, Ezra gets word from the leaders of Israel that everything has in fact gone wrong. And this news crushes Ezra. So today what I want to do is I want to look at what has happened to Israel. And then I want to look at Ezra's response because I think there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves from the way Ezra handles this situation. So in Ezra chapter 9, we're going to read the first five verses and then we're going to dive in. It says this, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So if you jump back up to the first couple of verses, what do we see? We see that they've traveled and they've weighed all their gifts to the temple. They've offered burnt offerings and sin offerings to the Lord. But then the leaders of Israel come to Ezra 
and they tell them that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they have not separated themselves from all of these foreign nations that are around them. And in fact, they've now intermarried with all of these different foreign nations. So the holy seed now is mixed with the people of all of these foreign lands. So here's the news that is so crushing to Ezra, that the people of Israel have married the other nations around them. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is that so bad? Well, take this for example, right? Maybe you've got all these nations living in the same area together. And maybe there's an Israelite man, and maybe he sees an Israelite, or not an Israelite, he sees a farmer's daughter across the field, and he thinks that the farmer's daughter's pretty cute, right? And he he finally gets the courage to go and ask her out on a date. They didn't really have dating back back then, but you, you get what I'm saying. He goes up to the farmer's daughter, but no, he finds out that she's not just a farmer's daughter, she's an Ammonite. This is a big deal for them. Because an Ammonite worships a different God than the God of Israel. They actually worship a God named Milcom, which this is beside the point, but Milcom uh, liked child sacrifice, so um, I don't know what that's going to look like for them later down the road. But according to the law of Moses, according to everything that this Israelite man believes, they are not welcome into the congregation of Israel. So now our Israelite man has to make a choice. He knows that if he marries her, that all of the Ammonite beliefs and history come with her. He knows that the law of God prohibits this, and he knows that this could bring some very bad consequences for his people. But maybe he loves her. Maybe he's fallen head over heels for her. Maybe his heart is too far gone. And maybe it really doesn't matter what God we worship as long as we're together, right? So what do they do? They decide to get married. And now a once faithful God-honoring Israelite man has lost his heart to a false God and to a woman that has given her heart to a false belief system. This is the problem that Ezra hears about. And it's not just the Ammonites, it's the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. All of these foreign nations are now intermarrying with the people of Israel and the heart of God's people is in incredible danger of being lost to all of these false gods. You know, there's a reason that God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is the problem Ezra faces. God's people have been carried away by idolatry, meaning that they've replaced their worship of the one true God with the world, with an idol, with something that's fake and worthless. You know, earlier in Israel's history, as they were about to enter the promised land for the first time, God warned his people about idolatry. In Exodus 34, 12, it says to take heed to yourself if you make a covenant with these nations, lest it become a snare in your midst. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. This is why. For they will turn your sons away from following me 
to serve other gods. The sad reality of Israel's history is that despite the warning from God himself, Israel constantly fought against the snare of idolatry. Most notably, you can see in King Solomon's day, this was a big issue. King Solomon was wise beyond any other, right? And he had riches and political power probably beyond any king in Israel. And he accomplished great things during his day. But 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon loved many foreign women. And it tells us that he clung to them in love. And they turned his heart away from being loyal to the one true God. And the Lord became angry with Solomon and told him that his kingdom was going to be torn away from him. And because of this, Israel dove into a cycle of bad kings, good kings, bad kings, eventually leading to greater and mightier foreign nations like the Babylonians to come in and take Israel captive and take the people into slavery, into other nations, all because of the snare of idolatry. And the people of Israel lived in exile. And now after all this time in exile, they finally have a chance to return to Jerusalem and start anew. And what does Ezra find on his return? the same snare of idolatry that led them into exile in the first place. Now, if any of you are thinking and you know your Bible history a little bit, you, you know that there's caveats to this issue, right? You may be thinking that if an Israelite marries someone from a foreign nation, that doesn't necessarily mean that their hearts will turn from the Lord, right? For example, you look at the story of Ruth and the story of Rahab in the Scripture. Ruth was a Moabite woman who um, had a tragedy happen in her life and her mother-in-law, Naomi, um, also had a tragedy where her husband and her two sons passed away. And now Naomi, she's going back to her people in Israel. And uh, Ruth is a Moabite, so she has an option to either go back to her people and her gods in Moab, or she can stick with Naomi. And guess what she does? She sticks with Naomi. And guess what she says? She says, your God is now my God. Or what about Rahab? Rahab was a harlot who lived in Jericho. But both of these women are listed in the line of King David and the eventual line of Christ himself. So obviously their families didn't turn from the Lord and worship other gods. So doesn't you ask the question, doesn't that make the marriages between Israel and foreign nations okay? But here's the difference. Both Ruth and Rahab had a crisis of faith moment. And in their crisis, they turned their hearts not to the false gods, but to the one true God. You know, for Ruth, she decided to give up her gods long before she met Boaz, who she would eventually marry. And Rahab knew that the city of Jericho was going to be destroyed by Israel. And so she welcomed the spies in and then told the spies to go back and say, hey, protect my family. I want to follow you guys. So what happened after that? Israel invaded Jericho, they destroyed it, and then they protected Rahab and her family. And so you see that both Ruth and Rahab were both God followers before they married into the nation of Israel. That's the difference. And it tells us in Hebrews that by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So their hearts were already for the Lord prior to marriage between Israel and foreign nations. By the way, if you're thinking, this is why missionary dating doesn't work out most of the time. The Bible tells us to be equally yoked, right? Because marrying someone and then hoping and praying that they will turn their heart to God, that's a dangerous road because what will happen is your love might outweigh, your love for that person might outweigh your love for God. And then slowly over time, 
The snare of idolatry traps you, and you wake up one day having abandoned your God altogether. This is exactly what happened to King Solomon. And this shows us that even the most wise among us are still susceptible to the snare of idolatry. And this is exactly what happened with the people in Israel in Ezra chapter 9. The wisest among them, the leaders themselves, are the most responsible for their current situation. The rest of Ezra chapter 9 verse 2 says, Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. You know, the word foremost here means that they were chief in this trespass. Not only did they allow it to happen, but they were actively engaged in it. Somewhere down the line, there's been a tragic breakdown of leadership for Israel. And the end result is God's people have been carried away yet again by the snare of idol worship. And their hearts are in grave danger of turning away from the God who loves them and has protected them all this way. When you think about it, what does this have to do with us? Well, all of us, no matter what, are susceptible to the snare of idolatry. It doesn't even have to be in the context of marrying an unbeliever or establishing the worship of, of, excuse me, of, of a false god, right? I mean, not many of us are establishing you know, altars in our living room to false gods, right? That doesn't come up very much. But Proverbs 4 tells us to guard our hearts and to give attention to the words of God because they are life to those who find them. Idolatry can make its way into our lives from so many different angles. But I have to ask the question, why is idolatry such a snare for us? We hear idolatry and we think worshiping a false god is bad, but most of us, like I said, don't have that problem. But yet, we tend to make little gods out of all the things that we choose to worship more than God himself. And those little gods that we make will always, always show their true colors eventually. David Foster Wallace, who was an atheist author, wrote these really big, uh, annoying books. Don't, don't read them. I'm, they're just uh, brutal to get through. But he was an atheist writer and eventually committed suicide because he worshipped worshiped himself over everything. But he said this in a commencement speech, and I think it's really profound for us. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. You know, Wallace goes on to say that pretty much everything that we choose to worship other than God himself will eat you alive. And that's exactly what happened to David Foster Wallace. He was giving this advice to these new graduates, but yet he himself was worshiping all that he was, and it came up short, and it ate him alive to the point where he gave or took his own life. You know, King Solomon didn't have the problem of worshiping false gods at first. It was the love of foreign women and the possibility of more political power that drove his heart away from God. Just the same for all of us. When we fall into the snare of idolatry, there will always be something or someone that we think will satisfy us more than God does. In those moments, we think that whatever it is, it's going to bring us the same joy in our lives that only the Lord can give us. And it is in that moment, whatever we are pursuing becomes the idol we never intended to create. 
You see, whether it's money, food, sports, friendships even, all of this, they're not bad in and of themselves. It is when we decide that what they can give us is more satisfying than God, it's when they become bad. The Corinthian church dealt with this issue as well when talking about eating meat that's been offered to idols. It wasn't that the meat itself was bad. It was the fact that they were opening themselves up to fellowship with darkness and demons. And Paul says that the Gentile pagans in Corinth were offering their meals up to demons. And he wanted the Christians in Corinth to know that you cannot fellowship with both demons and God. So if they were to knowingly eat meat, that means that they were knowingly going to sit down at the table of the pagan worshipers. Then they are knowingly fellowshipping with darkness. You know, if they took that meal to go and they brought it home and they gave glory to God and praised over it, that's totally fine. He's not talking about that. He's saying, if you go into their space and you sit down at their table and you eat that meat that's been offered to the darkness, you are fellowshipping with darkness at that point. And they're trying to get the same level of communion and fellowship from the darkness that they already have in Christ. So what does Paul tell them to do? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that meat is fine to eat as long as God still gets the glory, right? If you uh, enjoy football on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? It's fine as long as God still gets the glory. You know, maybe it's fine to listen to secular music as long as God still gets the glory. The trick is that in the moment that music you are listening to has trash lyrics, that becomes, God's not getting the glory from that situation, right? You know, it can seem simple enough when you boil it down to that. Whatever you do, just give God the glory and you're fine, right? But going all the way back to Genesis 3, we see that the devil likes to walk around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he walks around tempting us towards sin. And in that temptation, we often turn our hearts away from God and we make those little gods that all seem so good to us at first. All those things, in reality, are but an echo of what will truly give us joy beyond measure. But that echo, that desire, can seem so strong in the moment, right? Can seem so much more tangible than God in our lives. But eventually it will reveal itself to be hollow and joyless. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, Weight of Glory, says this. These things, talking about the, the things that we give over to our uh, worship other than God. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country we have not yet visited. It's an echo. I think about it like this. Uh, who, who's a big fan of the uh, sparkling water drinks in here? It's okay, you can raise your hand. I'm definitely a big fan, okay? I love the bubblies, I love the LaCroix, I love the, the ahas. I think the ahas are probably the best ones out there. But I'm, I'm a big fan of those, right? And you crack open a lemon-lime bubbly and you're like... Oh, man, that tastes just like Sprite, right? That's what we all say. That's what everyone hears us say. But guess what? It doesn't taste like Sprite. It never will. It's not Sprite. It's sparkling water. It's not the same thing. 
But man, what do we say when we take a sip of it? That tastes just like Sprite. No, it doesn't. Guys, this is idolatry. (laughs) We kid ourselves thinking that whatever idol we have set up offers the same level of joy and satisfaction that God offers. And what do we say? Wow, that's just like God. No, it isn't. That's the snare of idolatry right there. And it is what Ezra's people have been caught up in. So what's to be done about this? What does Ezra do next? In verse 3, he says, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. You know, it's funny, as I was studying this, you can kind of see the difference in character between Ezra and Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, they face the exact same problem of intermarrying with pagans. And Nehemiah hears about the problem. He doesn't rip his own robe or tear out his own hair. He finds the guilty ones, rushes up to them, grabs them by the head, and rips out their own hair, right? You can kind of see he's a little bit more proactive than Ezra is. Ezra hears of the guilt of Israel, and he plucks out his own hair. That sounds really painful. I think this gives us some insight into Ezra's good leadership. You know, a good leader will often take the blame for something, even if the guilt wasn't really theirs. A good leader will let the guilty ones know that even though you have failed, I'm still with you in that failure, and we will move forward together. You know, later in the chapter, Ezra starts to pray, and when he's praying to God, he doesn't say their iniquities, their sin. He says our iniquities. Our sin has risen higher than our father's. See, Ezra hadn't committed the sin that led them into idolatry. He shows up and he finds them in this situation, but yet Ezra knew that they were all in this together. And he wasn't about to start playing the blame game with God, because that never works out. And Ezra knows that for a true spirit of revival to take place, there must be a true spirit of communal repentance. This can seem odd for us today, because so much of how we live is individual over community. But back in the Old Testament, it was the exact opposite. It was community over the individual. The community mattered just as much or more than the individual. And Ezra is very concerned that the actions of a few are going to cause major consequences for all of God's people. So Ezra tears his robes, plucks out his hair, and he sits down astonished at the state of his people. You know, that word astonished literally means that he's gone white as a sheet. He's pale at the thought of the sin that has occurred. And in verse 4 in Ezra 9, it tells us that Ezra's not alone in his astonishment. It says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra is joined now by all the people that trembled at the words of God. And they join Ezra in mourning and astonishment at the idolatry in their midst. You can see the heart of the faithful people here. Because they all trembled at the words of the God of Israel. They had a respect and an honor for the word. And they knew that there was a warning in scripture of falling into idolatry. Now they're worried. They're probably worried that they're going to be taken away into captivity again. So what do they do? They assemble together and they sit in their astonishment at what has happened. They mourn. That's their first step. I think this is a really key point for us today. Ask yourself this question. Do you mourn 
over the sin that you see every day? Are we broken up that our friends and our colleagues and the people we love are living in sin? There will never be true revival unless there is true repentance. And there will never be true repentance if we do not feel sad or astonished or mournful over the sin that we have committed. And in today's world, there's this new standard to just let people be who they are. Just let me be me, right? That's true. We want people to find freedom in Christ Jesus, and we want them to be who God has made them to be, but that's not what they're talking about. They, they're saying, just let me keep on living however I want to live. What we don't want is for people to be trapped in that habitual sin that they have in their lives. We want to mourn over that sin. We want to be astonished over that sin. We can even get angry over that sin and still love and care about them. Because our mission is to point people towards Jesus who can cleanse them of that sin. Well, then you might say, well, Jack, I, I just don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to possibly lose that relationship. I, it's easier just to let me continue letting them live however I want to live. Tim Keller, who recently passed away, said this many times, that anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. We can be angry or mournful or astonished with someone over their sin because we love them so much and we want them to find the forgiveness of Jesus in their lives. But indifference, not caring, that's out of the question. We want to point people towards their Savior and love them every step of the way. It's actually more loving to point them towards their Savior than it is to let them just continue living however they want to live. If true revival is to take place, then true repentance is the only way. And repentance can only happen if we are astonished at the sin, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of other people. And we come back to our Savior's feet and we lay it all down before Christ, Christ and we ask for forgiveness. But the trick is, you don't want to just go start pointing out people's sin for no reason. You want to look right here first. Look at yourself. Get right before God. Get right before Him on your own time. And then you can go and you can say, hey man, I know that this sin is killing you. It's destroying your life. Help me just show you a better way. But indifference is not an option. Ezra and the people who trembled at the word of God were astonished at the sin around them. And they knew that indifference was not an option. So what do they do next? And verse 5 says, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Ezra did what we all should do when confronting our idolatry. He got down on his knees and he prayed. You know, most of us, whenever we pray, we close our eyes, we bow our heads, we put our hands kind of like this, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like, the Bible doesn't tell us that that's bad. But I think it's really important here that Ezra got down on his knees. Ezra's body language can, tells us, can tell us a lot right here. The fact that Ezra got on his knees demonstrates an incredible humility and submission to the Lord. And the fact that he then spreads his hands out tells me that he is pleading to the Lord in repentance and is open and ready to receive whatever the Lord is going to give him. 
You know, Ezra knew that even though he didn't commit the sin, he got on his knees and he spread out his hands before the Lord and pleaded with God in prayer for himself and for his people. You know, if we are astonished at the sin and idolatry around us, what's the first step we need to take to fix the problem? We need to bow down in prayer and repent to God. Because the truth is, it's not other people that we've sinned against. It's not other people we've turned away from following idols, right? It's the living God who loves us and cares for us that we've turned away from. So the first step is getting right with him. Then comes the rest. King David in Scripture knew this very well. In 2 Samuel, when he turned his heart away from the Lord and found Bathsheba bathing on the roof, um, and then he eventually killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah and then took Bathsheba as his own wife, it was an egregious sin that cost him dearly. But then a little bit later, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he shares a parable with him. And in that parable, basically it's pointing out David's sin. And David is angry. He's astonished at the sin in that parable. And then Nathan says, that's you, David. You're the guy in this story. And so David had all the chance to shrug it off, to ignore what Nathan was saving, saying, just say, just let me be me, Nathan, right? But he doesn't do that. He gets on his knees and he prays and he repents. And in Psalm 51, we get to hear that prayer. And it says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know, the rest of Psalm 51 continues David's true heart of repentance. But David says in verse 4 that it is God alone that he sinned against. It's true that many other people felt the consequences for David's sin. And in the story of Ezra, many people felt the consequences of the sin that they had committed. But we must never make the mistake of thinking that it is other people that we've wronged first. It is God who we have sinned against. And it is God who we must always come back to first in repentance to be cleansed of our sin. What do you think it would look like if every single person in this room lived a life of repentance? doesn't mean that we do everything perfectly. Lord knows we're not going to. But instead of shrugging it off, instead of you know, saying, that's not me, just let me be what I want to be. I don't have that sin in my life. What would it look like if we all just got down on our knees and say, God, I repent. I'm sorry for my sin. Cleanse me of my sin. What would it look like if there wasn't any blame going on? If there wasn't any beating around the bush? And David knew what he had done and to whom he had done it. And immediately he returned to the Lord in prayer and said, God, cleanse me of my sin. That's the kind of attitude we must all try to embody when we are faced with our idolatry and sin. Because God is, God's in the business of destroying our idols. But it's up to us to take the first step toward repentance, and then God can do the rest. The first John 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But that confession is the first step. God is ready and willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
But all we need to do is humble ourselves enough to come before our loving Father in heaven and just confess. As this is a daily thing, as we live in this world full of sin. But the truth is, there is always hope in the midst of idolatry. Because Jesus Christ has conquered all of our idols. And if we have given our lives over to Him, then He is powerful enough to conquer your idols today. But maybe you're in this room and your heart is turned far from the Lord. Maybe you don't know if you can quite trust this Jesus guy. Maybe you haven't been set free. You don't have a relationship with Him. Or maybe you are a Christian in this room, but your heart is as hard as a rock because of all the sin and idolatry that you've given your heart over to. Maybe because we live in a world of sin and idolatry around every corner, it seems like there's something new just to give our hearts to, right? Maybe you've been white-knuckling it for so long and nothing you seem to do can get you back on track. The truth is nothing you can do will work. Not on your own. That's why Ezra doesn't try to fix the problem himself. All of us need a divine intervention in our life if we are ever going to turn from our idols. But the truth is, I feel this way sometimes, it can feel like God's not listening. Those things that I give my heart over to are so much more tangible than what God is doing. It can seem. Where's the hope in a situation like that? The hope is that the divine intervention that we all need has already come, and his name is Jesus. You know, back in Ezra chapter 9, Ezra hears from the leaders of Israel that his people, the people he loves so much, have turned their hearts away from God and followed the idols. So what does Ezra do? He comes before God and he prays. But he doesn't just pray for his people. He prays for himself also. The truth is, Ezra was guiltless of the sin that had been committed. But yet, Ezra becomes guilty of the sin. By his own free will, he became sin who knew no sin. You can see that this whole story is a picture of the gospel. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God because we have sinned against him. We are all headed towards death and eternal separation from God because of our sin. But God, being astonished at our sin, and loving us so much, gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to be born on this earth and to live a perfect life without sin. And the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And on that cross, the sin of the world was laid on Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our place on the cross. He took our sin on the cross, and he conquered the cross by raising to life again, proving that if we just believe in him, we confess and we lay our lives down in service to him, then we can be saved from that eternal separation and death. But not only that, we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. But not only are we saved, we begin a relationship with God above because the moment that you confess and you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit then comes to dwell within you. And it is the Holy Spirit's mission to convict us of our sin and to guide us towards His righteousness and truth. So we are never alone in our battle. We sang battle belongs at the very beginning of service. The battle belongs to Christ. But more than that, 
Each and every single one of, us, one of us face battles every day, but we are never alone in that battle if we have Christ with us. All because God loved us too much to leave us in our sin and separation. And by his own free will, he gave us Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, to become sin for us so that we would find freedom from all of our idols. That sounds like hope to me. That's not the kind of hope that we think of oftentimes, right? Oh, I hope I get a good grade on this. I hope this day turns out the way that I want it to. I hope she says yes, right? We don't know what that kind of hope holds, right? We don't know the end result of that hope. We know the end result of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is through Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead. We can bank on that hope. We know the end result of that hope. And we can have that hope dwelling within us right now so that whatever idols we are trapped in, whatever snare that we've given our hearts over to, we could, be, we could find freedom from that, all because Christ is resurrected from the grave. Amen? So I want all of us now just to close our eyes. If you want to get on your knees today and pray, it's not going to be weird. That's what Ezra did. But I want all of us just to take a moment. And my hope for us today is that we would find freedom from the idols in our lives. Those echoes, those things that we think will truly satisfy us, but they don't. And maybe today you're here and you don't believe that Jesus came, died, and resurrected for you. Today, right where you are sitting, you can confess to God that you are a sinner and nothing you have tried on your own is working. So you need a Savior to come and set you free from that sin. And in your seat today, you can confess to God and believe in your heart that Jesus came and took the sin of the world on himself and gave up his life and died for you and I. But also that God raised him to life again three days later. And now, because of that, he can save you from your sin. Because he's conquered it by coming back to life. If you do this, you will be saved. And you will begin a life in relationship with God above by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. There's no other way to fight the idols in our lives other than Christ Jesus. But maybe you're here today, you are a Christ follower. But your heart is, has been given over to these idols, whatever they may be. Today you can come before God and lay those idols down at his feet. There's nothing in this world that will satisfy you the way that God can. Be rid of those idols today. There's freedom in Jesus' name. You can make today a starting point. Declare that you're going to make Jesus your number one priority. The truth is, it may be a long road of daily repentance, but right now, just like Ezra did, you can get on your knees and you can pray, God, cleanse me from my sin. Help us move forward. All it takes is for all of us to take that first step, just to surrender over to Christ. What would it look like if every single person in this room lived a life of repentance? I think revival would take place. 
So today we're just going to sit and we're going to pray. We're just going to be still for a moment. Just to think about those idols, those things that we've given our hearts away. Just lay them at the feet of Jesus today. You are so good to us. You show us a new way of life each and every day as we endeavor to pursue after you. Help us right now just to find freedom from our idols. Lord, help us lay them at your feet, knowing that you have the power to conquer them. Lord, help us find freedom each and every day as we come to you in daily repentance, following after you, seeking to share the gospel, the good news with the world that's around us. Lord, you are so good. Lord, you love us so much. That's in your beautiful name. Amen.